Attention Kingdom Hospital medical staff, attention. Could someone please retrieve Dr. Hook from Swedenborgian space for his interview? This concludes your announcements. Stay tuned for... Oh, you're here. That was fast. This is Andrew McCarthy. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And today we are joined by Zoom, Dr. Hook himself, Mr. Andrew McCarthy. Andrew McCarthy, welcome to Dairy Public Radio. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Uh, we want to go ahead and kick this off by asking our favorite question to ask people. First, what was your introduction to Stephen King's work? Mm, that would have to be Carrie, I guess. Yeah. Did you read it when it like when it first came out, or did you find it later on? No, it was later. I, th- I think it was even after I saw the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. And then I think I read it. That was the uh, the first book we did on our show. <laughs> was that his first book? Yes, it is. Anyhow, but my favorite of his books, which is not what you asked me, was his writing book. Actually, his book on writing, which I think is great. That is a good one. I have that. I think it's great. And I mean, in that he talked about a story about how when he sold the paperback rights to Carrie and came home afterward, and his wife said, "Did we get 30? Meaning thousand. He said, no, we got 300. And (laughs) the life has changed. I thought that was a beautiful story. Uh, Do you have a a favorite Stephen King moment from any of his books or movies? Just something that really stuck with you after seeing it? You know, I I have to say, I love The Shining, even though I know he didn't like it very much. I I thought that a lot of the visuals in The Shining just stay with me. I have to say, that's my favorite one of uh, adaptations of his, which I know he's not very pleased with. Did you see the Dr. Sleep movie? I did not. Oh, they do. Uh, they do a lot of recreating some of the initial shots from The Shining, incorporating into it, and it's really <laughs> masterfully That's done. Good. How is it? It's oh, it's amazing. It changes from the book a lot, but in really, really good ways. Did you guys see the original uh, Kingdom Hospital, the Dutch one? I guess it's Dutch, isn't it? It is. No, we have not seen that yet. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want it to spoil anything for you. <laughs> I did. Yeah, that was it. I, I don't think it was available way back when. You know, things are so easy now, but it was. I don't even think it was available to us. Yeah, we actually we have the the four part series from the original. We just haven't gotten around to watching it yet. We wanted to finish. Kingdom Hospital proper before checking out the original. I hear it's very good. Well, Kingdom Hospital's very good, so it makes sense. Well, it didn't, you know, it wasn't. It didn't do very well at the time. I mean, I don't. I honestly don't even know if they aired all the episodes. I remember it started very well, it started really well, and then it just kept sliding in the ratings over and over. And I don't even know if they aired all the episodes. Do you? Uh, I don't think they did. I I read an article Stephen King posted about the fact that this show, he described it as a a novelization of a series, and you have to ask the audience to invest so much time at the front for those big payoffs like you normally get with a novel, and that uh, the DVD, he said the DVD would have the rest of the series because the rest of the series was shot. So yeah, I guess that means they didn't air it all. Well, yeah, but that was also before serialization. You know, in the, in the world of Netflix now, it would be a much different uh, experience uh, putting that all on out. But it would be much, much better had it come out now. Oh. Because we just watched TV like that back then. And you'd have to wait a week till the next episode and all that kind of thing. It's something, it surprises me that Kingdom Hospital has not started streaming anywhere that nobody's bought the rights to put it out there. Everybody, all of our listeners who have come around to finding it have just gone and bought it on DVD and been excited watching it. And so many people have said to us, I can't believe this isn't streaming. I imagine it would be a real hit right now. That's a good idea. 
<laughs> is Netflix listening? <laughs> we'll send this to them. Before we, we get into some Kingdom Hospital stuff, I, I just had a few questions for you. You have my dream career. You've done everything. And I think it's, it's, it's so impressive. It's so amazing. All the things you've done, all of your performances you've done in your career, what is something that you look back on the most? They only ask you that question when you start to get really old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just am not the guy that looks back. I just don't. But I mean, I, I have to say, I, I love, in its own stupid way, I loved Weekend at Bernie's. And I loved a movie I did early on called Heaven Help Us. I thought it was a really lovely movie. I enjoyed playing the part in uh, St. Elmo's Fire a lot. I thought that was, I was well suited to that. I liked that. And I liked on TV a number of years ago, I was on a show called Lipstick Jungle. I had a very a role that I liked a lot. There was a couple of seasons of that show. Do you, ha- do you find you have a lot of freedom uh, because you have such a, an established career that you have the ability to just pick and choose so easily some of these roles or some things that you can look at and say, that'd be an insane amount of fun to do? Well, I mean, I haven't been acting much in the last 10 years, really. At all. I've been directing a lot of television and in my other life, I'm a travel writer. So I haven't been acting that much at all lately. Although I just recently did uh, a little bit on a show I was um, directing on called uh, Good Girls. And I did several episodes of that and I'll come back again the next season whenever anybody starts making TV again. <laughs> And do some more of that because that was really fun. I play a, a hitman, which was fun. And it was nice to act again. I hadn't done it in so long that it was just like, oh, yeah, I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of your traveling, I, I should ask you, how has quarantine been for you being someone that travels such a huge part of your life? Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I think the same is for everybody. It's like, let me out. <laughs> but you know hopefully it's changing now but i'm in a beautiful spot i'm in upstate new york by a lake and everything so it's very pretty and all but uh yeah enough's enough right yeah do you have a, your first destination you want to get out to as soon as this quarantine is lifted well actually i was just talking to my wife this morning about i think it would be nice to take a drive across america and just see what's going on i'd like to do that maybe i also wanted to walk out years ago i walked across spain on the Camino de Santiago, and I had 25 years ago this summer, so I was I was planning to do that before all this happened, and I don't know that I'm going to get it, be able to go this summer because they don't want us over there, yeah, <laughs> you know, because um, especially us New Yorkers. So I don't know that I'll get to go to Spain and do that, but but I would love to just take a drive. It's been a while since I've done it, and I would love to take another drive across America. How long did it take you to walk across Spain? Uh, about a month, five weeks. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that was an amazing trip, life changer. The Camino de Santiago is fantastic. Yeah, I've recommended it to a number of my friends and they've done it and they've come back and it's had a very life altering experience. It's a great thing to do because, you know, you slow down and all you're doing the whole day is I'm walking. I'm walking to the next little village. I get there tomorrow, I'll walk again. And it's a fantastic experience. I recommend it. You said something in one of your interviews that I watched that really struck me because I don't travel very frequently because. Uh, I, I'm afraid of travel. There's just something about it that makes me so anxious. And and you've said that travel obliterates fear. So what what do you think it is about traveling that helps people overcome that inherent fear? Oh, you know, um, but I agree with you. Most Americans are afraid to travel. They blame it on other things, but it's really fear. You know, with the 40% of Americans have passports, half of us have ever used them. And I, I think Americans are afraid of the world, afraid to travel. And I think a lot of the judgment we put on the world and the assumptions we make about the world would just be obliterated. You know, like you said, uh, the minute you go somewhere, because it just it puts you in a position, puts you in a childlike position again of that wide-eyed wonder and sense of discovery 
and a sense of innocence and a sense of needing help again and having to ask for help. Because, you know, a lot of us construct our lives so that we can avoid any kind of uncomfortable situations or fearful situations. And it's extraordinarily limiting. And we say it's other things, but often it's really just fear. So we take our comfort and we, then we don't do things to take us out of that comfort zone. And, you know, being comfortable is fine. I'm all for it. And, um, and I go to great lengths to make myself that way. But I, I do think going out, getting out of our comfort zone is, is growth. You know, Mark Twain had that famous line, travels fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And I think there's a lot of that in, uh, in America, as we're seeing right now. Uh, and travel just changes that. The minute you have to go somewhere, can you help me? The minute you say that, so, excuse me, hi, do you speak English? Can you help me? You're brought down to being right-sized again. And all mm -hmm. that sort of defensive arrogance and puffed up kind of way we try and live just goes out the window. And I've never been anywhere in the world where they've said no to me, except New York. <laughs> you know, uh, live in New York. Uh, that's not true. And so I, I just find it an extraordinary, and I defy anybody to go travel abroad and come back not sort of change my, particularly if you travel alone. I think traveling alone is a hugely valuable thing. And it's not always fun. It's not a vacation. I'm not talking about a vacation. I'm not talking about going and laying out on the beach. There's a very big difference between vacationing and traveling. Traveling, going and learning, going to a new place and a different culture, again, you know, where there's no Starbucks and, you know, experiencing diff the way different people live and realizing we all are who we are underneath. You know, I, I just think that's huge and a great gift to give ourselves and our children. And I think the arrogance of sort of not being interested in that is pure fear and which is fine, but let's call it what it is and admit what it is, you know? Yeah, that's why I'm definitely not afraid to admit that I'm afraid of traveling. <laughs> <laughs> but just go. You just yeah. go, go somewhere easy. You know, you must be curious about somewhere and just go and you can come home. You know what I mean? Nobody's asking <laughs> you to <laughs> You're there for a couple of days. You go, you know what? I'm going home. Okay. I just pay my penalty on my airline ticket. I'm going home. You know what I mean? You can go home, but that's not going to happen. Yeah. That's right. I never considered that. That's a really good point. <laughs> you know, it's just like, this didn't work out. I'm going home. In addition to your travel writing, you wrote a fiction novel, a YA novel, that yeah. uh, I bought and devoured in two days. I absolutely loved it. Dude, you're not the audience for it, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about a, maybe you identified like I did with the central character who's a 15-year-old girl and your inner, uh, your inner 15-year-old girl was talking. Right. <laughs> you talked about that you tried writing that for so long and once you shifted to Lucy's perspective, that 15-year-old girl, that it all yeah, just kind of clicked. I wrote it for a number of years and then I couldn't crack it sort of. And then well, she was my favorite character and it was a very small part in the book. And then once I changed it to her point of view and made it about her, it became a YA novel and then... Yeah, it just sort of flowed. But that's the process. That's a sort of creative process. It's just, you just, you wouldn't have never started there, but you go, this idea, and then that idea, and then that idea, and then that idea, and then that, that. No, and there it is. You know what I mean? And that's just process and coming to know and be comfortable in process, which it took me years to do. I always just wanted, this is my idea, this is what I'm doing. And it's like, well, it doesn't work. But now I realize none of my ideas, where they start is where they, the best realization of them. They all need to go through process. And yeah. sometimes that takes a while. Something that I, I really enjoyed about it was that every adult in Lucy's life has some sort of secret that they're hiding from their children. And learning them, she starts to see these people as adults in her life more than they're real people, not just her parents or her grandparents. Do you remember yeah. when you found out that your parents were people? I don't. I'm still <laughs> waiting for that. But I do think it is a big moment when, when you realize that your parents, I, yeah, I'm, I, when you realize your parents have a life outside of you and a very, you know, bigger than a life before you. And because it's just, but it's perfectly natural. We don't, we see them as an extension and we're, you know, 
orbiting around us, but it's just, you know, and it's a real step of maturity and growth and toward adulthood when you realize that. Uh, have you thought about, with all of your acting and directing experience, making an adaptation, uh, a film adaptation of Just Fly Away? I, I thought about it for a, a moment. I thought it would actually be a better sort of TV, well, mini short part TV thing. And someone, uh, I think, optioned it. But so I, I but I, I sort of felt like I was done with it. And, if someone, and, and doing that, getting something up off the ground from zero is, you have to really be passionate about it again. And I lived with that story for a long time. And so I kind of feel like I'm done. But if somebody else wants to do it, you know, these people, if they get it off the ground, God bless them. <laughs> would you Would you show up on it if they made it for TV? Would you be in it? Sure. <laughs> I'll be the school principal or something. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> With everything you've done in your career, how does someone like you measure success in, in each of these areas? Because they're all so different. I know they all kind of come back to the same central theme of telling a story and connecting, but the success is is so different in each of them. You know, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't generally measure success because you always can be, you know, I measure success more in like my life. Like if my kids have, are, when they're all grown up and they want to turn around and have a relationship with me in an active way, then I would sort of consider my life a success, you know, but professionally I just sort of keep working and don't think about success what experiences do you attribute to making those moves from acting to directing to writing? They're all the same thing, really, to me. Parts of me that I really, there were things of interest. And being an actor is not a very practical thing. You don't, you know, and it was just something that I had a passion for. And I just followed that. And the same with just, that was a natural evolution into directing because I came, grew interested in more of the whole thing as opposed to just my perspective on it, which then that's what writing is also. And, and travel, writing just evolved naturally out of the traveling, which is something I was passionate about. So I've all... You know, all my stuff's sort of the same, and then it's all just sort of passions that I've followed that are totally impractical, and then you just figure out. I was lucky enough to them have them become my, my day job, you know, but they were all based in just sort of pure passions and things that make me excited. I, I couldn't do a job, <laughs> you know, like a regular job. I don't know how people do it. I have great respect for it, but I, I just do sort of. And when I have, when I've directed shows and things that I haven't believed in or haven't liked, it's been a real grind. You know, like just banging out a job, oof, I find that rough. I feel very lucky in that I, all my sort of jobs are passions as well. And I'm not good at it. If I'm just doing a job to do a job, I'm not very good at it. But if things are passions of mine, then they tend to turn out better. I think that's a great rule of thought. You're, that passion drives the best quality. And I'm lucky in that, that I get to follow that and do that. But I never actually considered any other option. I don't have any other skills, you know, <laughs> so I don't, and I, and I never did. And so I, I didn't have another, you know, sometimes it's best you don't have another option. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get to the reason we reached out to you, which I, I can't believe that it worked when I reached out to you to talk to you about Kingdom Hospital. But we here at Dairy Public Radio have been recording these episodes in isolation, and we figured what better thing to do than dive into a, a 15 hour, essentially a 15 hour movie split up as a TV series, and that's where we met Dr. Hook. And Dr. Hook was immediately one of our favorite characters, and I'm curious how you came to be Dr. Hook. I don't know. I certainly didn't read the whole thing. I don't think it was about We read a, a thing or two of it, and I went and I auditioned for it in New York, and then they, they were very interested in me doing it, and then it kind of went away for a while, and I went on vacation in Montana, during that, I made a call, uh, during the middle of the vacation, I made a call and they said, yeah, they're going to hire this other person. 
I was like, wait, that's my book. And <laughs> so they said, well, they're, they're, they're really, they met some, you know, and I met them very, very early in the process. So, and often sometimes coming in very late in the process is the thing. You walk in the room, you're like, ah, oh, finally. You know, when you meet somebody <laughs> early, you're always kind of going, yeah, okay, let's see some more people. Yeah, let's see, you know, it's just sort of human nature. There must be something better out there. That can't be it. And so they talked to me, we're going to hire this other guy. And I said, no, I got it. I got it. They go, well, they're doing one more day up in Vancouver where they're doing, you know, more local parts because that's where they're going to film. And so they're meeting some of the more local parts. So if you want to go back in again, you can get yourself up to Vancouver like tomorrow. So I left my vacation and went up to Vancouver and had no appointment to go into the thing. I just went to where they were auditioning, waited in the room, and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here to be Dr. Hook. And okay. And I came, I went in and, and did it. And then there it was. And then that, that was that. So uh, it was one of the first and only times I really sort of went after something like that. When I first did it, I said, yeah, that's, that's what I, that's my job. So that's what happened there. That's amazing. What part of that role drew you to fight so hard for it? <laughs> I just think he was an <laughs> odd guy in an odd place, you know, very much sort of lived in his own, you know, little isolation. And there's something about that, that appealed to me and he had a you know he had his heart was in the right place mm -hmm. you know and I, I just thought he was an interesting guy I hadn't seen anybody like him before he's he's definitely struck us in a lot of ways he's been very charming and very vulnerable too and that's really cool so Kingdom Hospital was we've read that it was shot like a movie with so many things being out of order doing it that way did you ever have a hard time keeping up with Dr. Hook and keeping your place with him yeah, we did shoot it. Normally, you know, even when you shoot a series that is now serialized like that, you do, you're doing one at a time or two, it's like a block of two of it. But yeah, we were doing, it was like a 160 day shoot and we were doing, you know, things with episode one with episode 10. And it was just sort of like, <laughs> huh, where are we? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, you did, it was as, yeah, sometimes you had trouble keeping track of it. And you'd spend a good 10 minutes right before you go, okay, so this happened. I know this. This already happened between us. Oh, we haven't kissed yet? Oh, okay. So <laughs> and all that kind of thing. That scene we filmed four months ago, that was right before the strike. Okay. <laughs> Getting back literally to just where am I? Where am I coming from? Where am I going? Did that lead to any uh, like fun moments or, or stories that you remember from that time? I'm sure it did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there was what I, I literally the thing about kissing them. There's like a scene where I kissed one other doctor, right? The blonde woman's name. I haven't seen the show in so long. And right, don't I do that? Yeah, yeah Dr. Dr. Draper. Draper. Yeah. And uh, but that was like we did a scene that took place after that. That I was acting as if we took done it before that, and then we just sort of go. She's like, why are you being so cold to me? I'm like, well, because we're like this. Well, we just made out. And I'm like, oh. Right, okay, can we, can we do another take, please? <laughs> so with a cast of so many strong actors to play against, uh, Bruce Davison, Diane Ladd, and Ed Bagley Jr., who was the most fun to perform with? Well, the most interesting, I hate to say this with the humans, was all the CGI and the artificial kind of stuff. Where you're, playing, you're acting with, or watching go by these, like, you know, there's that anteater or whatever the hell that thing was. <laughs> and, you know, there's a big whole scene in an elevator shaft where I was down in the elevator. And we just surrounded me in this giant green screen stage. And I hadn't done much green screen before. So all that was really fascinating and the real education. I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it a lot. Did you watch Kingdom Hospital when it started coming out? No, I watched it when it was on TV. And then I remember, you know, I vaguely remember, like, wait, I don't think I, I've never seen the whole thing. 
<laughs> because it came out and it got canceled somewhere down the line of it. And I, so I never saw the end the last couple, three. I don't remember how many episodes they did in there. So I've never seen the whole thing. I recommend picking up the DVD. It's great. <laughs> I honestly think it's probably, how many hours is it? 13? 15. 15? 15. I'd say it, it, you could have cut 20% out of that. <laughs> I do. I think, I think that was one of the issues with it. It was just too, it, it could have been streamlined a little, but yeah, who am I to say? We really enjoyed all of the scenes with you and uh, Dr. Stegman and Jesse James. And you all do something in the series that we've talked a lot about on our show, and that is the kingdom finger. Do you remember that, what that's referring to? No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. It's it's the the secret gesture of the keepers where you put your thumb in your mouth. And oh, then yeah, blow yeah, yeah, your yeah. put do your pinky I out. That was so stupid. <laughs> yeah. And then you sort of blow up your fingers like a balloon. Yeah, I was yeah. like, do we have to do this? This is really dumb. This is like, yeah, I always thought that was really dumb. <laughs> it out. I love that you said that just now because I'm not a big fan of gestures like that, and I had a really hard time with it. And so I've been made fun of on our show a lot because I'm like, ah, oh, they do the gesture again. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I agree. <laughs> I win, Josh. Andrew McCarthy agrees with me. Andrew McCarthy agrees. (laughs) Another thing that we found really interesting and intriguing about Dr. Hook is that his apartments were in the basement of the Old Kingdom Hospital. Do you know why or did you have a a reason why for your character that he lived there? It's his whole world, you know, and his whole world is what he did. And so people are just weird, you know, and they have peculiarities. And I sort of I never really asked why, because it just, that's where he, where else would he be? Could he have a home out somewhere else and come to work? And that was this whole sort of universe was that place. So I think when I discovered, I think that was like episode five, for some reason I remember that, and um, called Hook's Kingdom, right? Yeah. 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 And, and anyway, so I, and then when I, so when I finally got that script and read that one, I go, oh, good, that makes sense. You know, because I couldn't imagine a guy going home to a suburban house and whatever, you know, uh, or whatever. So I, that seemed like a, it just made sense to me. I never even really kind of had an issue with it. And, and it made, it made me, that's the character that I would assume him to be. So it made me know I was sort of on the right track. Do you remember what your first impression of when you either saw or read about, you know, Hook's kingdom, the little graveyard that he has set aside in his room that keeps track of all of the malpractices or mistakes that have happened in the hospital. Right. The graveyard is another thing I forgot about. You know, there's some t- I thought that was, in all honesty, because, right, who cares, 15 years ago. Um, I didn't know more, 17 when we filmed it, because my son was a year old and he's 18. Yeah, it was about 17 years ago we filmed. I thought things like that were a bit obvious and not as uh, subtle as, you know, as it might be, although subtle is a funny word with Stephen King. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? It can be some terribly subtle and things, and, and then other times things are so immediate in that way. But I liked what it said about him mostly. You know, he was a guy with a lot of baggage, mm-hmm. you know, and he really probably couldn't function out in the real world. Another reason he was probably down in the basement, you know, and so you, it was just a, a view into his psyche. So I'm like, whoa, he's taking all this to heart. It's not just going through the motions here, you know, so... I like that. I wasn't crazy about the manifestation, but I like what it said about who he was, you know, how much baggage he had. You definitely added subtlety to that scene with the way that you and Draper played it and played against each other. That was a scene that we were really fascinated with and thought was really cool. And there are so many moments in that show 
where things are more overt or they're more subtle. And sometimes they get kind of uh, off the walls crazy and you don't expect it. And some, and, and there are a lot of terrifying and really cool horror moments. With, well, with one the, of the things is the, the tone of the show, I think, was some one of the issues in that sometimes it was kind of funny. Sometimes it was scary. And then maybe it wasn't. Then people thought it wasn't scary as it should be. And then sort of what was it? So I think it had some tone issues that that led to problems with it, you know, led to some of the confusion on how to receive it. Although now shows are more, you know, I used to direct on the show Orange is the New Black when that was on. And that was one of the shows where, you know, the change of tone was really welcome. It would be really sad and then really comedic. And to go back to your point earlier, maybe they should stream this show because yeah. it might be a lot more effective <laughs> now. But I think at the time that was one of the issues. People were like, wait, is this, you know, what's the tone? With that being the case, when this was originally filmed, did you have any difficulty keeping Dr. Hook grounded in the middle? No, I mean, my guy was kind of, I think Hook was pretty much solid straight. You know, he's the pretty reality based as far as given the reality of the show. I think what his function was to the largest degree was a through line of sort of stability and rationality and sort of the audience's conduit to enter into it. And then crazy stuff that goes on can be seen from that sort of central perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. We enjoy this show so much. We would love a season two. Did you guys ever discuss having a season two? Do you remember like what plot points might have been? I mean, there was no original. I mean, you always talk on TV shows about a, uh, a season two and season six. And, you know, when you're filming first one, there was never any official one. But yeah, of course, there's always the excitement when you're doing something that like, oh, my God. Yeah. And then you have to believe that too, where this could go. What was difficult was though the show started to air while we were still filming. The show, after the first couple episodes, really started to decline in ratings. And so we had to keep shooting even after we knew the show was not going to be successful. You know what I mean? I think we were probably six or seven episodes were on the air by the time we finished shooting. And by then, we sort of the die was cast. And so that was a difficult. I remember the last month or so was like, wow, this is just like very Stephen Kingy kind of shooting over a corpse here. You know, so that was not, I forgot about that. That was not a great time. Just because, you know, it was a real lesson in professionalism. It's like, this show's over. This show's going to be dead. And we're just, we have to finish. And because we knew we would have a life in DVD and whatever after. But that was challenging. I've never been involved in a project like that where that happened. And we're so glad you guys did finish it because now we get to go through this and see the whole story and do that for our show. And our listeners get to join in on that journey. It feels uh, like a cult classic to us, which we love all those types of movies and shows. They, they may not do well at the start, but then they gain this huge following of people who love all the, all the quirkiness of it that audiences may not have been able to appreciate initially. We're also curious uh, with COVID sort of putting a halt to all of these creative outlets. What effect do you think this will have more long term on the entertainment industry? You know, that's impossible to say. What's the challenge immediately is how do we practically physically go to work? Because when you're making a TV show or a movie or on a set, you're, you're in each other's spaces and in each other's faces and actors can't have masks on and things. I don't know, so they're still trying to figure out how do we actually physically go to work. But long-term effect, once we come out of it, in my personal opinion, once we come out of this to the other end, you know, do we ever learn much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> do we ever, you know, I don't know. Did we learn, you know, the lessons we learned from September 11th, I think, you know, we that was an opportunity. And, you know, that's the other thing people sort of compare this to, this life cataclysmic changing event. And, you know, I don't think the lessons we took away from that were very positive. I don't think we did a positive job. You know, there's such an opportunity to rewrite the way we saw the world. We just reacted with fear and aggression. It's just creating, you know, let's create enemies more. And we did that very well. 
here, you know, it's turned into such a political charged issue that seems have nothing to do with what's really going on. And it is not a political issue and that it's become one entirely is, you know, I don't think we'll learn a damn thing, frankly. I think people try and see, earn money as fast as they can because they've been shut out for so long. So, so that's my cynical point. <laughs> um, but will it lead to different storytelling? I hope we don't a year from now see a bunch of pandemic movies. No, I hope not. <laughs> But I don't, you know, I think people are just in the show business trying to learn how to practically, how do we go about making a show now under new guidelines? And I think those guidelines will fade. But I think at the beginning, people will be worried about getting sued. Yes, they want to keep people safe, but really they just don't want to get lawsuits and things. So so we'll, we'll have to see. What things are you focusing on and interested in right now? Well, I was in the middle of directing some TV shows right when it happened. So I'll go back and finish that. I was working on a show called The Blacklist and on the show I was mentioning Good Girls. So I'll go back and do more episodes of them. Also just written a memoir of my uh, 80s Brat Pack days, which will uh, just finish that. And so that will be coming out early next year. So that's uh, I spent some good chunk of time writing that. That's outstanding. I actually was meaning to ask you, I know you've said before that you found the the label of Brat Pack as pejorative, but looking back on there, how does that feel now versus then? Well, I mean, at the time it was very pejorative. And, you know, it was cast in aspersion, you know, it was as very condemning. I read the article that it was based on, the New Yorker article, which I hadn't read in, you know, when I was writing this book, I hadn't read it in, since it came out in 1985. I mean, you know, before you were born. So, and it was a horrible, scathing article. And I, you know, the two, I wasn't even in the article. I was one of the people they were trashing. It was an article about Emilio Estevez, and uh, and he took a, a reporter out drinking with him and Judd Nelson and Rob Lowe. And, you know, he didn't like the way these kids were behaving. They were behaving stupidly and arrogantly and foolishly and drunkenly, you know, and that's just... Why would you bring a reporter into that? And so it was a stage, the whole broadcast thing was a staged event for this reporter. So it all became, but it's such a good phrase and such a head, and it captured something. But so at the beginning, yeah, it was really uh, a nasty thing. And I think, you know, labeling anything means you make no further attempt to understand it and you put it in a box and no actor wants that. No person wants that happen. You know, we would, not many of us would like to be put in a box of what we were doing when we were 21, 22 and have that be, that's who you are. Oh, yeah. Done. You're done. So it took me a long time to not feel, to get myself out of the box. And once I got myself out of the box, it didn't matter if other people were pretty trying to put me in one because it didn't, that, that I wasn't. So I didn't mean anything to me. Then, then I was free of it. You know what I mean? You only care about that stuff when you kind of agree with it. If somebody says something about you that is stupid, you kind of go, that's stupid. But if they say something that's a vein of truth in it, it can really bother you and it can make you angry and aggressive, you know? <laughs> But over the years, I think the term has come to be such an iconic and affectionate one for a moment of youth recalled through rose-colored glasses, you know, I mean, and it's that moment of youth for a generation of when the whole world is in front of you and opportunity, your life is a blank page in front of you and there's nothing more thrilling than that moment in life. You know, my son has just graduated high school and he is just, it's so sweet, you know, his whole life is just starting and it's very exciting and wondrous and life is wondrous. And that goes back to travel which is why one one of the few things, no matter what age we get, we can still have that wondrous feeling again. You turn the corner and look at something. You see the pyramid and you go, oh my God, look at that. You know, and that's a wondrous feeling and that's fantastic. So that's why one of the things I love about travel. But I think the Brad Pack label, like I say, you know, now represents something to a generation that is 
viewed so affectionately. It's like a fine wine. It, it aged well. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to be able to look back and have that perspective. And I'm curious, do you have any... Well, I didn't have that perspective, particularly until I was, you know, I don't didn't think about it much. You know, I, the only time I ever thought about it was when people would ask me about it. And then I would just say, yeah, it was just a pejorative term or whatever, you know, and I would try and, and get on with my life. But I didn't really look at it in full context from sort of A to Z to where it is now until I was writing this book when I really had to think about it. And, you know, that's one of the reasons you write these things is to sort of, John Didion has that line, I write to find out what I'm thinking. And, you know, I really discovered a lot of, you know, and those movies mean so much to people of a generation and they mention them to me almost every day. And I always used to kind of go, yeah, thank you, thank you. That, that's a nice thing. But now I realize it really touched them. And then the, what then they need to do is share their appreciation or gratitude or what it meant to them. And that makes them feel good, you know, and that's a great, gift that I was able to be a part of giving. Yeah, I'm all for it at this point. Do you have any advice for people who may still be stuck in that maybe fearful or negative place about things that they've tried and haven't gone the way they want, you know, and they're still out there searching for that thing that'll make them feel like themselves from the toes up? I, I try not to have advice for anyone. <laughs> um, no, truly. I, I try not to have this advice. You know, because advice, is, it's pretty, doesn't mean much. People don't learn by being told things. They learn by seeing things and witnessing things and experiencing them. Uh, all I ever want to is keep the faith, you know. It's so easy to get down and discouraged and feel defeated by stuff. And there's more than one way up the mountain. My mother likes to say, if I had any ability or gift, it was that I could see, I thought I wanted something. And then when I, what I really wanted appeared, I was able to recognize it. When I was younger, I, you told me I was going to be a travel writer. I, I just wouldn't, you're talking about somebody else, you know, I don't, <laughs> I wouldn't, or if I was going to write books, I'd say, no, that doesn't, you know, going back to acting is very much sort of like a fish in the water, kind of going, what water? You know, I'm just so used to it and so such a part of me. But all the other things I've done have all been taking me by surprise. But I was able to sort of recognize it when it happened. I was like, well, wait, what's that feeling? I'm rambling, but I, I just think that notion of your own inner guidance, you, you don't listen to anybody. Like I tell my, I try and have my son listen to me, but really I don't want him to listen to me. Go <laughs> find your own way. I'm right here. If you turn around, I'll be right behind you. But you know, we shouldn't listen to him, especially when we're young. Shouldn't listen to anybody. If you go, I've listened to people, I've never done any of the things that I've done in my life. You have to say, you know, I want to do this. I'm going to do this. Okay. God bless you, dude. Don't get hurt. Don't hurt anybody. And I'll be right here when you come back. You know, I think that's, that's just the way I see things. You know? Well, that's, that's great. Not advice. <laughs> see, at the end, I'll tell you what to do. Hang around. I'll go, no, no, I won't tell you I ask my wife. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much for uh, all of the gifts you've given us in performing in Kingdom Hospital and all of the other entertainment you've given us. Just We want to thank you one more time for joining us. Oh, it's been fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. Hey, everyone. Sam Alexander here. Thank you for listening to this very special bonus episode. Josh and I had an amazing time talking to Andrew, and we hope you all enjoyed listening. Before we wrapped our interview, I, with great shame, asked Andrew to do the gesture with us. Obviously, this is a visual thing, so we'll post a screenshot on our social media, but I've also included the sound clip from that at the end of this outro because his response was pretty funny. Check out Andrew McCarthy's work on his website, andrewmccarthy.com. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye. And I, I was wondering if I could ask even though I hate this, if you would be willing to do the gesture with us. Oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no.
you wouldn't want to do that to yourself. I, I don't. I don't. Josh is making me. No, that's all right. I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank we enjoyed you. talking to you.